Welcome to the Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists, examining timely psychological trends and excellence in clinical practice. I'm Dr. Samuel Lesgarten. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Wendy Rasmussen about personalized medicine and the future of psychotherapy. Dr. Rasmussen is a licensed clinical psychologist and director of clinical strategy at Sondermind. She served as a Navy psychologist from 2015 to 2020. Upon leaving active duty service, she sought roles that would support her passion for making mental and behavioral health care more accessible through innovation and technology. Wendy joined Sondermind in 2020, driving clinical engagement strategy across client and provider journeys to ensure the enablement and delivery of high quality care. Passionate about leveraging technology for better mental health care, her optimistic vision fuels a commitment to create meaningful change in the field. Wendy, thank you so much for being here and welcome to the program. Thanks, Sam. Super happy to be here. Of course. I'm I'm excited to be talking with you. People that listen to the show won't know this, but uh, we were uh, colleagues at the University of Iowa. And so it's always a pleasure to be talking with old friends and old colleagues about what they're doing today. So thank you for, for coming on the program again. I want to talk a little bit about personalized therapy and the future of practice. And that's been the subject that we've been talking about leading up to this episode. But before we dive into that, I want to better understand what it means to be a psychologist moving into the field of technology and psychology or technology and psychological practice. This is a unique role in my mind. I feel like there aren't that many psychologists that that have these titles or are kind of entering into the technology space. So thinking about your different routes and roles throughout, um, you know, your postgraduate career, I'm curious how you got here and and what made you that that strong candidate for this field of technology and psychology? Yeah, I have what I would say is a pretty unique background. So even prior to becoming a psychologist, I had a career in the music business. So this idea of making these non-traditional career pivots isn't new or unique to me in my experience. So um, I knew even in grad school pretty quickly, I didn't want like kind of a traditional either you're going to become a researcher and faculty member, or you're going to become a full-time clinician um, and supervisor and, and being in those settings. And so that's partially what led me to uh, joining the Navy as a psychologist is that I wanted mm-hmm. some non-traditional experience. I wanted to grow my leadership uh, skill set and experience there as well. Um, and I, I just couldn't picture myself being in the clinic full time. So I went down that path. Um, I did start out full time as a clinician because mm-hmm. that's sort of the career progression for a Navy psychologist is you really develop your clinical chops and then you kind of slowly over time uh, and with each assignment take on increasing leadership responsibilities usually. And so I had spent two years, luckily, in Hawaii. Uh, That was my Mm -hmm. first duty station. And so um, really just did full-time clinical work at that point, Uh, volunteered for a deployment. So I was the assistant officer in charge of an embedded clinic on deployment for nine months. And so that was the first place that I got some leadership and clinic management experience. Um, And then after that, I headed to Camp Lejeune, where I was embedded with the Mm -hmm. Marines and intended to do a consultation to leadership and be embedded. Um, But due to a 
dearth of resources, uh, mm. I ended up uh, really just doing full-time clinical work again and working with mostly high-risk folks. So the burnout was high um, mm -hmm. and I was honestly like pretty frustrated with the slow pace of change. Um, I'm sure mm -hmm. you can imagine working for such a large healthcare system um, that mm -hmm. it's really tough to, to impact change, especially when you're moving every couple of years. So I knew I wanted to get back to working with creative people. I wanted to be working on hard problems and I wanted to be uh, moving quickly on them. And I also wanted to be building something. Uh, that mm -hmm. was also something that I felt was missing. And so I started looking at the, at the tech space um, and at the time, so this was 2020, behavioral health tech was starting to pick up steam. Um, and so this was pre-COVID when I started working right. on this and certainly COVID where we all moved to telehealth, uh, fast forwarded the, mm -hmm. the move to more uh, virtual delivery of care and, and more digital health solutions. Um, so I was lucky enough to have uh, a, a contact I had met through the Marine Corps who was working at Sondermine at the time and they were still uh, early stage startup, fewer than 100 mm -hmm. employees. And so when you are connected with an early stage startup, what's, what's kind of nice is that they're willing to take calls with strangers and, uh -huh. you know, if, if you show interest. Um, so had some early conversations with them, but didn't quite have anything uh, for me at the time. And then once uh, the chief medical officer was on board and I was fully out of the military at that point, then we reconnected and and I think because I had experience with measurement based care uh, mm -hmm. and quality and um, I would say like client data mm -hmm. um, and the implementation of that I think that was really important to make me a desirable candidate for mm -hmm. uh, joining Sondermind at the time. Mm -hmm. I appreciate you kind of taking a little bit of a, a timeline or journey in the arc of your your careers and and how you got here. I want to also go back to that other question too that was that I was asking too around our representation as health service psychologists or even just like mental health providers in this intersection between technology and practice. Tell us a little bit about what that looks like today, because back to my point, like it feels like there are very few of us mm -hmm. in these roles, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. So being um, in industry and in, um, I guess you would say the, the tech sector, uh, there's definitely clinicians at the table. Um, the, there are certainly groups of clinicians, and this is master's level through doctoral level. Um, who are continuing to advocate for more of a seat at the table. Um, but I think if you're in specifically behavioral health care delivery, or if you are building digital health solutions, uh, mm -hmm. then most, if you're just talking about startups specifically, have caught on that they're going to need clinicians as part of the building process. Um, mm -hmm. Because, you know, you can have all the AI machine learning product experience, but if you don't have experience in what it's like to deliver care and what that mm -hmm. uh, client and provider experience is like, it's going to be hard to, to really understand your customers at that point. So um, there's a couple groups. So the one that definitely comes to mind first is uh, called Therapists and Tech. And so mm. they started out as, as kind of a, a smaller community with a presence on Slack. Um, and they're quite large now. And they um, do a lot of advocating um, for more clinicians at these organizations. Um, 
They do a lot of mentorship for students who are looking to move into industry rather than um, staying in the academic setting. Right. Um, and so it could be a mix of clinicians, but also researchers. Um, and then there's a second uh, community that's called Well um, that I'm a mm. part of. So that's specifically for women clinicians and digital health. So it's not just mental health, but mm-hmm. the entire uh, healthcare sector. So um, I would say we're definitely definitely out here and there's a lot of interest in continuing to grow our presence. Um, APA also has their initiative around mm. healthcare innovation. And so mm. um, the Office of Healthcare Innovation, where they're looking at technology innovation and measuring care, that's also a great place to start. And you start to see that the fact that APA is investing in this and creating mm-hmm. a whole office for this um, just mm-hmm. kind of shows that we are out here. <laughs> uh-huh. I already feel like I'm saying the phrase, you know, back in my day, but, <laughs> yeah. but, it, and that's not that long ago, right. But back, at, back in graduate school, and I'm sure you can relate to this, the resources you're talking about just didn't exist. That's right. I, yep. I don't remember therapists in tech. I, even though I identify as a man, I, I I don't recognize well. It seems like a lot of these things have changed and there's been a lot of progress in the last, like, let's say three, four years uh, yes. to grow and have clinicians join these companies, organizations trying to better care through technology. Yeah. And I think clinicians are catching on that we need to be able to speak the language of the business leaders that we're working mm-hmm. with. Um, Mm -hmm. we can't expect them to become psychologists. Um, Mm -hmm. We can't expect them to become clinicians. And so part of our skill set, and I think we'll get into this more in a bit, but part of the skill set that's going to be necessary is understanding how to, like, what do business leaders care about as they are Uh growing their businesses? And how does uh, mental health or behavioral health or the things that we know about drive business outcomes as well? Well, let's go there. You talk about the skill set. So what does make a, uh, make up the skill set that's going to be really attractive to, to an employer in, in the tech space? So I would say a um, couple things. I think data literacy is what stands out most. So I know as, as therapists, we love to mm-hmm. live in the gray area. Um, I often joke with colleagues when they ask me for, you know, my professional opinion on something. Mm-hmm. I, I like to joke that my initial response is always, it depends. Mm-hmm. Um, and course. so uh, business leaders and, and folks in product and, and engineering and, and who are building these things, um, they want to know that the recommendations you're making are rooted in evidence. And so... Mm-hmm. We are, I would say we do have a good training and background in this, you know, given that we learn how to critique research and critique studies. And, and so I think we are also bought into needing evidence for our recommendations. What is different though, that I had to learn is things like, um, if you're going through larger pools of data and, Mm -hmm using that to drive decisions, like what are your hypotheses? What are you looking at? Mm -hmm. Um, And then using data visualization software is also Mm -hmm. like, that's a pretty tactical thing, but that's something I also had to learn um, joining Mm -hmm. this this field is things like 
Looker, Tableau. Um, and so actually translating hmm. that data and such large data sets and pulling out um, answers to the questions and being able to communicate that to your colleagues. Mm -hmm. So that's, so all, that's the... all well and good to be a clinician, but it, it is really important to, you know, we came from a scientist practitioner model of training, but I'm hearing you say like emphasis on the science, like you're going to have to come in either having gained that after your degree or during your degree, some of that analytical understanding. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Um, and I'm also a qualitative researcher. So mm -hmm. I think maybe for folks who are also qualitative researchers, like there's certainly value in being able to, to do that type of research and analysis, but you've got to have the analytic, like quantitative mm -hmm. analytic chops as well. Um, that's mm -hmm. going to better serve you. Um, if you are going into healthcare delivery, um, understanding measurement-based care, and I know this is something mm -hmm. that we've talked about that didn't feel like any of us got training on this back in the Can't recall it. <laughs> 2010s. Um, and so, you know, being in the Navy, all of a sudden we were tasked with, okay, we've added these computers to the waiting room. And when mm -hmm. your patients come in, they have to fill out this battery of questionnaires before their session. And so we weren't really trained on what's the rationale behind measurement-based care, mm -hmm. but what I have better found now that I'm here at a measurement-based care organization, it's an evidence-based practice. It's a way for us to kind of navigate what I was just talking about, that gray area where therapy is very relational, but we mm -hmm. do want to make sure that clients are getting better. Mm -hmm. And so a couple pieces to measurement-based care. So Essentially what it is, is using uh, patient reported outcomes. So client reported data um, about their symptoms, about their day-to-day -day functioning, um, about their sleep, things like that. Um, and using that to inform treatment planning. And so mm -hmm. what happens is clients become more active participants in their care and providers also get feedback about how treatment is going beyond, as I know we love to rely on our clinical judgment. Um, however, you know, we can't all be above average clinicians. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. this is a way to uh, session to session, work with clients and show them like, hey, here's where you are getting better. Hey, you're not getting better. Like, what do mm -hmm. we need to do to the treatment plan to adjust it to make sure you're trending in, in a better direction and you're getting mm -hmm. something out of treatment? Um, and beyond that, what we've actually found um, at Sondermine in our provider group and, and our clients is for the clients and providers who engage in measurement-based care, the clients are getting better faster. Mm -hmm. So it's, even though you may look at a PHQ-9 and say like, oh, well, this is just, you know, DSM symptoms of depression. Eh, uh -huh. I don't love this. Like, yeah, it's very subjective and, and obviously not an objective measure but it is helping inform treatment for those who are choosing to use it. Mm -hmm. You're, you're talking about the measurement based care and that, you know, back to that question of like, what's going to be that skill set? Like what I'm taking from you, Wendy, is that the more that you can have a curiosity when you're in training or even as you're an early career psychologist in practice, thinking about, hey, how do these things work? How are they going to better serve my clients? That's going to make you a better candidate for positions in this field too. Absolutely, I yeah. I want to sort of stay on this topic of data. And um, at, recently you were at APA talking a little bit about personalized medicine or personalized therapy more specifically. 
And there are all these different kind of hot topic terms that are getting thrown out nowadays about like AI and machine learning. And it's all going to, it's just going to make everything better. Now, I, I, sh I have a, an optimism towards technology, but I also, uh, you know, when I hear some of those terms, even to me, they can feel like, what are we talking about? And so how does all this technology that we're alluding to or talking about support clinicians and then more so their clients? Yeah, this is a could be a two hour long conversation. So <laughs> I'll try to, to keep it brief. Um, and just based on my experience working at a tech enabled behavioral health care company where we are supporting, you know, the delivery of care. Um, so AI and machine learning are for the uninitiated or unfamiliar, big, scary terms, um, mm -hmm. because there's a lot of fear of the unknown. And so I think mm -hmm. a lot of hesitance, it's probably roughly 50-50. One, we've been burned by things like social media that were supposed mm -hmm. to be this great technological advance that brought us all together, but there have definitely been unintended negative consequences, right? And mm -hmm. so naturally, people are a bit wary of mm -hmm. um, AI and machine learning and the growth of that. So I think that being skeptical is good. Um, there's definitely ways in which this could go sideways um, in being knowledgeable about things like asking about, okay, what's an organization's approach to data privacy? What's an organization's approach to decreasing bias? So, mm -hmm. um, and then also security, you know, are mm -hmm. we making sure as we're transmitting client and provider data that it's remaining secure? Mm -hmm. um, I do see the optimistic part of me sees AI and machine learning and other um, um, uh, other sub topics of AI uh, doing a lot of good too. So what we have seen, so we do have machine learning as part of our matching algorithm. So people come to us looking for a therapist, Provide we partner with providers in private practice, um, and then uh, clients are able to use their insurance if they want to pay for care. Mm -hmm. And so what our matching algorithm does is it takes into account a client's location, uh, what they're looking for help for, and then our machine learning algorithm will match them with therapists with availability who are in mm -hmm. their area, take their insurance um, and specialize in what they're looking for help for. Mm -hmm. So with that, we've been able to get people into care with a private practice therapist in on average seven to 10 days from wow. the time of requesting a match. So getting, mm -hmm. for example, to our website to getting into their first session. Um, and mm -hmm. so anyone in private practice who has their psychology today uh, page up and are, you know, waiting for clients to come to them and doing a lot of marketing um, or therapists who have a long waiting list and right. continue to have people coming to them. Uh, this is a much better experience because we're able to get clients to the right therapist in a much more timely manner than otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, Seven to 10 days is is wild <laughs> yeah, when you think yeah. about it, especially given the context you're talking about. I, I'll have prospective clients reach out to me and say, you know, Sam, I've, I've called 10 different offices or individual providers and either they don't get back to me um, so I just, I don't even know what's happening there. Uh, they, they tell me they have a wait list or they're just like completely closed to new clients that even talking to me is like maybe the first time in all of those calls 
that they've even reached somebody. And that's weeks into the process of trying to find somebody. So when I hear you say seven to 10 days, that is a huge difference, especially in the private practice context. Yes. And so what's been really exciting is we we're very focused on access and mm-hmm. we now, because we're, we're getting pretty good at the access piece and that's really become table stakes in this field. Mm-hmm. Um, most organizations are getting pretty good at access because that's the easier part. <laughs> What's the tougher part is getting them connected to the right therapist for them. Mm-hmm. And so with, you know, we've got so much aggregate data that we have access to and I'll be very clear, um, Mm de-identified in the aggregate, um, we can then use machine learning, which can process so much faster than obviously the human brain. Um, Mm -hmm. And so we can use that to actually learn what is making a good match. Um, Mm -hmm. What is potential barriers to care? Even if people are coming to our front door, what's happening that they're not either getting to that first session or what's happening that they're not staying in care? So we've been looking at um, early dropout and ways that we can help our clinicians um, try to decrease that. Um, And Mm -hmm. so these are the kinds of insights that clinicians don't have access to, but because Mm -hmm. we have all this data, because we have a data science team, we also have a research partnership with the University of Denver. So we've also Mm -hmm. got our counseling psychologist friends um, Mm -hmm. reviewing our our de-identified and aggregate data and sharing these insights back with us. What's really cool about where our organization sits as a hub at the middle of all of these stakeholders is then we are sharing these insights back with our clinicians. And so mm-hmm. our goal is using our technology, using our data science team to very quickly improve the quality of care and the effectiveness mm-hmm. of care. And so that's also where I see um, AI and machine learning uh, really like supercharging our insights Mm -hmm. and the things that we're learning about what makes for a better provider experience, a client experience, and ultimately outcomes. Wendy, as you talk about machine learning and artificial intelligence and the researchers at the University of Denver that are analyzing this data and then trying to to have that help uh, the clinical practice that we do at Sondermind, I'm, I'm curious then is there going to be a time, or maybe that's already here, when that data can be used to predict a client dropping out of therapy or used to predict the fit between a client and a provider? What happens next once we have all this data? Yeah, so predictive analytics are actually a subset of AI. And so this is, you know, when we talk about, you asked about personalized medicine, um, mm-hmm or what we're, you know, personalized behavioral health care, it is going to help us having this volume of data. Um, It is going to help us better predict what treatment is going to work for whom, what type Mm -hmm. of therapist client match will be the best. Um, I'm not saying that that's going to be foolproof because this is still relational. But Mm -hmm. if we can increase the odds that the matches that we're making are going to lead to a good relational fit, then that's all the better for quicker access to care, clients Mm -hmm. staying in care and ultimately getting better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In preparation for this episode, I I was thinking a little bit about how, okay, you've got all this data and you're analyzing it. You're trying to help improve the the practices of clinicians in private practice, but also ultimately the results for clients. 
And it made me think about this, this newer book that's out by Scott Miller called Better Results. And the premise that I've come to understand is like, some providers actually can and do improve their performance. It's not necessarily the default. If you look at a at the data of a bunch of providers over years of practice, they're not necessarily moving up or down. Some actually do get worse over time, but they're not necessarily, it's very kind of hard to see. But what Scott Miller and their team talk about is this idea that there are providers that are actually getting better and here's what they do. And so I'm curious with this, this technology focus too, and the data that we're talking about, how do we make clinicians better? I love, and I am so excited about the idea of personalized training and education Mm -hmm. for clinicians. Uh, What you are skilled at and what you are good at is very different than what I am skilled at and what I'm good Mm. at, right? And so I'm very familiar with Scott Miller. Um, He's um, very prolific in the field of feedback-informed care, which is part of Mm measurement-based care. So teaching clinicians how to integrate client feedback for data um, into the treatment planning. What his book is focused on is clinicians engaging in deliberate practice. So, Mm -hmm. okay, here's my plan for how I'm going to improve on this specific area. Deliberate practice is really great in theory, but it's really hard to put into practice because it is time consuming and uh, helpful to have kind of outside folks giving you feedback um, because it's hard to know what you're good at if you're practicing Mm -hmm. in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think this idea where clinicians could really benefit from intellectual humility. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's a term that uh, really gets to the core of, look, I get that we all think we are either at minimum average or above average clinicians. Mm -hmm. I think the statistic is 80% of clinicians think that they are above average, which Mm -hmm. is statistically impossible, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So one of the things that we do look for for providers joining our group is, are they open to feedback? Are they interested in growing, um, interested in improving and integrating these um, new best practice insights that we're surfacing? Mm -hmm. Um, And and I think that AI and machine learning in particular are very exciting to think about um, personalized training and development. So for example, um, we actually, are launching a grant funded study in partnership, again, us, University of Denver and a platform called Listen. Mm. So Listen, um, essentially one of the things that they do and what this study is looking at is, can we help clinicians develop cultural humility as a way to build uh, cultural competence and be able to Mm. serve diverse clients? Uh, So what Listen does is they have, essentially you go onto the platform, which is the website, you watch uh, videos of mock clients and then Mm -hmm. you record yourself. um, This is what I would say next in this situation. Mm -hmm. Their AI then gives individualized feedback that says, hey, here are parts where you did really good on X, Y, and Z. Here's where you could have done better on Uh A, B, and C. Um, Mm -hmm. And so we're looking at that specifically for, can we help clinicians develop um, cultural humility? And so I think this is amazing because think about Mm -hmm. cultural humility and developing cultural competence is a very vulnerable position for clinicians to be in because they're very afraid of saying the wrong thing in front of Mm -hmm. other people. 
So if you can be more honest and uh, work on that in the privacy of your own office or your own home, I think Mm -hmm. we're actually going to see a lot better results. The cool thing about the recordings too, is that we can then that's a whole bunch of data in and of itself. Like, are Mm -hmm. we seeing clinicians actually getting better in this skill set as they practice through these videos? So very Mm -hmm. exciting. That's just one example, but think about if you were in a platform, seeing clients like AI can pull up, you know, a, if you're even thinking about a specific client, like, how am I doing with this client? Like Mm -hmm. AI could go through your previous session notes. It could go through the PRO scores, uh, patient reported outcomes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Eventually, I imagine there's going to be wearable data that Mm -hmm. clients opt into sharing. So has this person sleep or heart rate variability? How has that Mm -hmm. been since their last session? And so Mm -hmm. all of this will kind of come together, share with the clinician. And then if the clinician's struggling with, you know, kind of specific sets of clients, we can do some personalized training back with them. So Mm -hmm. that's what in the future, very exciting stuff, but an example of the way that we can make this a personalized experience for clinicians as well. Right. Yeah. Wendy, as you talk about it, I'm thinking about for my dissertation, how I paid people to transcribe it. Uh, But you're talking about the transcription that is automatically happening on the fly because of the language processing. And what I'm thinking about is how, wow, so we could kind of train that um, to detect an intervention in a transcript. So, okay, you know, Sam used... Um, and I'm going to go with my, the most fundamental one we do on a regular basis, which is like empathic listening. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, there were some like reflections of feeling or reflections of content here and like showing empathic listening and being able to highlight that that's happening in this part of the transcript. And then even being able to say like, Hey, evidence suggests that by implementing or using this kind of intervention in this moment can be really effective for your client now kind of inspiring you to think creatively or just opening up your mind to what you could intervene with. Cause I know for myself being siloed as I am in private practice, I can kind of just like get into this groove of doing what I know. And sometimes even there are things that I know that kind of fall by the wayside. So having that reminder of like, Hey, this is a good moment for this kind of intervention would be really helpful for my practice too. So it's getting me inspired. Yeah. So clinical decision support tools, that's another Mm -hmm. big area. So based Mm -hmm. on what the client is reporting, what's in your session notes, um, their frequency of treatment, are they missing sessions? um, Mm -hmm. What's their diagnosis, things like that, like that can all sort of come together. And then we could surface within a platform, hey, this is the like, next thing that you should consider. Like, we're Mm -hmm. never i think it would be very unethical to say you need to do this right right um but say you've got a client who phq9 severe depression on question nine is a two all of a sudden Mm -hmm. so suicidal ideation um a clinical decision support tool might say hey don't forget to do a thorough risk assessment don't forget to do a safety plan this is what a safety plan looks like if you've never Mm -hmm. done one um I think the biggest thing with education and training when people are already in practice is there's a tremendous amount of variability of mm-hmm. training that that people got. Um, so whether they were in a master's program and it was two years or they're in a PsyD or PhD program and it's five or six years, mm-hmm. tons of variability mm-hmm. in what 
people, I think, know how to treat and best practices. It's also really hard to stay on top of all the emerging best practices. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this is another way where uh, AI can very quickly pull from um, what is already known. So Mm -hmm. you can train, for example, generative AI is based on large language models and it's combing through all of the data in the large language model and saying, based on what you typed in or what you asked, this is what I think the answer is. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not some like, (laughs) <laughs> uh, a scary like premonition um right. all-knowing all-being thing mm-hmm. um it's just a, a predicting what it thinks the answer should be mm-hmm. um and so if you've got a client with a presenting concern or maybe an identity you've never worked with you know can we mm-hmm. get to a point where there is generative ai based on behavioral health large language model that can mm-hmm. say like, okay, based on what you're telling me about this client, this is what the current best practices are to consider. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm picturing some of my supervisors way back in the day who would have handouts like at their side, you know, <laughs> yeah. or a file cabinet that they could pull from when there was something relevant that was happening in session. And now in these m- much more digital spaces that we occupy as clinicians, I think we've gotten rid of the physical handouts and and, and less so having the filing cabinets and yep. and we've opted for these digital spaces and yet I still feel like I'm adjusting to that from the the physical to the digital when it comes to how do I use implement and pull from certain tools in the moment and I really yeah I feel very inspired hearing you talk about the the sort of generative abilities that we could have and and really what we're talking about is the future of, of practice and where we go from here. And so I I, I know there's a, a fellow psychologist of ours and a National Register member, Dr. John Norcross, and every few years he would do this Delphi poll, basically asking psychologists, hey, predict what you think is going to happen in the future. What's going to happen next in our field? And back when we were in graduate school, those Delphi polls were pointing out, hey, a lot of clinicians are saying technology, whether that's using smartphones or uh, assessments that are sent uh, somehow over some website, people didn't even know what it would be exactly. But they were saying, hey, technology is going to be more present in the future of our practice. And my gosh, were those respondents right? And they didn't even realize how soon they would be right, given COVID and how this changed our practices so radically. So I want to kind of just talk with you about how you all see the future of practice, whether that's from your own standpoint, Wendy, or as a representative of Sondermind. Yeah, I think uh, you're right that technology is going to continue to speed up the rate of change. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to continue to make care more accessible. And I think that it has potential to help clinicians be more effective. And I think it also has potential to make the provider or clinician experience a lot better. Mm -hmm. Uh, You think about how much time we spend on admin Mm -hmm. (laughs) and how technology can solve some of that for us. And there's definitely quite a bit of work coming in that. Um, I think it also helps us have clarity on why therapy works. 
Yeah. Uh, we have a lot of subjective measures today, and we're not at the point of having more objective measures of mental health. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's only with this level of data to comb through um, that we are going to get to a point of being able to have more objective measures of mm-hmm. mental health and how people are doing, which I think will inform our approaches to treatment and therapy. Um, I think that it's really helps in decreasing stigma. Uh, mm-hmm. Folks are much more comfortable talking about their mental health and how they're doing. Um, I think that technology has played a role in, role in that because it's made mental health issues more visible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we can improve the client experience by integrating technology because we're already used to, you know, for better or worse, social media and apps and having Mm -hmm. recommendations given to us, whether we want it or not, like you open Spotify Mm -hmm. and you've got Spotify DJ to tell you what you should be listening to, or Uh even, uh, you know, if you and I are corresponding over Gmail, it's Mm -hmm. already typing my email (laughs) before I'm even getting the words out. So I think that that's going to just continue to be the expectation where clients are going to expect that if therapists are staying more, analog, I guess is a mm-hmm. nice way to put it, that mm-hmm. it, that may kind of reflect like, oh, maybe this person isn't up on the latest. And mm-hmm. maybe this person, you know, they're taking too long to respond to me or mm-hmm. again, for better or worse. But I think the personalization, the speed to care, speed of mm-hmm. response, all of that is going to be just kind of a normal expectation for folks because they're getting it everywhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does make me think a little bit about like boundaries and what like as a private practitioner on your own Mm -hmm. or within a small group practice, what it means to be in that space where you're right, like there's going to be a growing expectation that like when you need it, it's available. And Mm -hmm. and what does that mean if on the human level, there are delays and boundaries to care too? And it's it sounds like it's going to be a more competitive environment too. Potentially, but I also think that just like in practice now where we do set healthy boundaries and Mm -hmm. for, you know, for some clients, it's actually really appropriate to say, okay, I'm not going to get back to you for a week or whatever it may be. Like I'm not Mm -hmm. on call because I actually want you to go out into the world and experience it and, you know, figure out how to problem solve and cope Mm -hmm. and manage. Um, and I, you know, don't want to kind of be your, your security in those moments right. um, and, and create dependency. And I think that you can still, even with expectation of speed with access, I think mm-hmm. you can still set very healthy boundaries. I think mm-hmm. we're still going to be attuned to the clinician experience. And part of that is not making you available 24 mm-hmm. seven. Um, mm-hmm. You're a human and, and you get to still model what it means to set healthy boundaries and yeah. healthy communication and, and self-care really. Mm-hmm. Well, Wendy, thank you for going on this, this wild journey of a <laughs> podcast and episode talking about, you know, careers in tech and thinking about what Sondermind is doing and personalized medicine and personalized therapy and how they use technology to better clinicians and their clients, but also just kind of talking through the future of practice with me, because I think that this is a really important part that we need to be thinking about. My gosh, we've done a lot of change over the last few years. My hunch is there's a lot more to come. Should people want to learn more about you or Sondermind, where can they go? 
Uh, so sondermind.com to learn more about Sondermind. And I'm on LinkedIn and I'm always happy to connect with folks and please come find me, say hello. And always happy to talk about this topic. It's exciting and daunting yeah. and, and just lots of room for growth here. So very excited to be here. And thank you, Sam, for inviting me. Of course. Yeah. Thank you again, Wendy. I'm Dr. Samuel Lesgarten, and this has been The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists. As a reminder, all episodes provide general information for discussion purposes only and don't serve as clinical advice or continuing education. Thank you.